One of the many interesting things about the book of Daniel is that it was written in two different languages. How many of y'all knew that? Okay, there's a few of you. That's good. It's not a super important fact, but it's really interesting. Um, but let me tell you why. Like the rest of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Daniel begins in Hebrew, as you would expect. It's the language of the Jews. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, it shifts to Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentiles. And then when we get to chapter 8, it shifts back to Hebrew for the remainder of the book. So the question is, why? <laughs> What's the purpose with that? And there's probably a lot of opinions about the answer to that question. Let me tell you what sounds most reasonable to me. If you remember last week in Daniel's vision of the four beasts, I mentioned a specific era of time that is being represented there. It, the Bible calls it the times of the what? Okay, so I was really glad. If nobody said anything, I was, I was going to resign. I was going to be done. <laughs> But I at least heard one person say Gentiles, so I'm good. I'll be here next week. So that's what it is. It's the times of the Gentiles. This is a period of time when Gentile rulers dominate the major political powers on earth. We learned that it began with the Babylonian Empire, and it continues until the second coming of Christ. It's actually a time of judgment against the nation of Israel for their sinful rebellion. Not only against God, but against the Messiah whom they have rejected. Then beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we know that, that Daniel describes these Gentile kingdoms that will rule on the earth. And since they are Gentile kingdoms, doesn't it make sense to speak in that language? And so he writes in Aramaic. But then in chapter 8, which is our passage this morning, he shifts back to Hebrew. And although he addresses some of the same events that we saw in previous chapters, he changes his perspective. And he now looks at them from a Jewish point of view. In other words, he considers how these same events affect the nation of Israel. So Daniel, in a sense, is changing his language based on his audience. But, but I think there may be something even deeper that's going on here. See, there are two very different stories taking place in the book of Daniel. One is focused on how God deals with people who willfully reject him. The other deals with the promises for those who humbly trust him. We know that the first one leads to destruction in God's judgment against sin, but the second one, praise God, leads to eternal life because of that promise fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, you could say that God is asking us a question as we work through the book of Daniel, and the question is this. Which of those stories applies to you? It's the only two stories in all of humanity. And so we need to look and understand and ask ourselves, which of those stories applies to me? Before we open up God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we, we do come to you. 
with humble hearts, desiring for you, as we just said, to transform us, to change us. And we know that your truth is what transforms our lives by the work of your spirit to the power and the glory of your name. And so, Lord, would you, in only ways that you can, miraculously, speak into our hearts and minds in ways that transforms our lives. Lord, we just pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to the book of Daniel. I'd love for you to read along with me, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. And so, if you will, follow along. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, uh, um, Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision. While I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Two of those horns were long, or excuse me, now two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So here we have another interesting vision from Daniel, but I want you to notice that he connects this vision to the one that we looked at last week. The vision followed that vision of the four beasts by about two years. And unlike the first vision, we learn here that Daniel is transported in his mind to another place. He says that he found himself in the citadel of Susa, the province of Elam, by the Ulai Canal. Well, as you think about it, that's a pretty specific location, isn't it? And because it's so specific, we know from history, this is where the capital city for the Medes and Persians was located. It's about 230 miles east of Babylon, and it would have been the winter residence of the Persian kings. And that canal was man-made. It actually connected two rivers and was a barrier to the fortress that was built for those kings. And yet Daniel was having this vision for many of those kings were even born. While Daniel was standing in this place, he saw a ram come and stand in front of the canal. The the ram, as we will later learn, represents Medo-Persia. As it stood There, it stood in the exact location of where that future fortress would be built. 
He had two horns. And one was longer than the other. But in this layer of prophecy, we learn that the largest horn actually started out as the smallest and then grew to be the largest. And again, we know from history that that was true of Persia, which started as a smaller kingdom and then rose to grow more dominant than the Medes ever were. It became the longer horn. And then... Starting from the east, the ram conquered everything to the north and to the south and to the west. And then a second animal appears in Daniel's dream. This time it's a goat. We learn later that this represents the kingdom of Greece. We learn that this goat came from the west and it says that its feet never touched the ground. And the reason it says that is because we know that Alexander, the one who's now going to be coming in from the West, conquered the world faster than any ancient ruler. He is the person represented by that protruding horn that came from between the eyes of the goat. And this goat, as we learn, struck the ram, shattering its two horns, symbolizing the the dominant victory over Greece, from Greece over the Medes and the Persians. But then it says that the, the kind of the peak of his triumph, it just ended suddenly. The, the horn was destroyed. And I want you to notice it wasn't destroyed by another animal. And, and the reason is, is Alexander the Great died mysteriously, suddenly. He, he was only 32 years old at the time. And it was so unexpected that he didn't have time to, uh, to appoint a successor. So what happened is there were four generals who divided up Alexander the Great's kingdom into four different kingdoms ruled by these four generals. Those are those four horns. They took the place of that single horn. And remember, don't forget, these are details being described in, 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 like I said, great detail to Daniel hundreds of years before they have ever happened. So don't lose sight of how remarkable this truly is. And, and we can look in our history books and validate all the things that were said hundreds of years before they ever took place. But it gets even better than that. Look at verse 9. Out of one of them, these four horns, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, which would be God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while this transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said in response, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly 
restored. So in this section, we learn about something that happens from within those four kingdoms that took the place of Alexander the Great. From within one of them, there was this little horn. And I need to tell you right up front that this is a different little horn than the one we looked at last week. And I know it can be confusing, but let me clarify. Last week, that little horn came from among the ten horns on the fourth beast. Do you remember that? This week, that little horn arises from the four horns of the third beast. So this is two different things going on. Now, I believe they are connected, and we'll talk about that later, but for now, this is a new layer to a previous vision that we haven't seen before. So there's new information here. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, Daniel is highlighting the impact of these events on the nation of Israel. We see in verse 9, when this happening, when we learn that this new king goes to the south and to the east and then to what's called the beautiful land. That's a name being applied to Israel. Israel is the beautiful land. Now, let me pause here and kind of give you some context to the events that we're going to look at and what's taking place in history. Because all this is happening in what is known as the 400 years of silence, that time period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. You know that there was a lot going on in history during that time. Okay, And so these are when these events are taking place. We know that the King Cyrus allowed many of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And during that time, under the leadership of, of Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra, they rebuilt the city. They reinstituted the temple and its sacrifices and really for a period of time lived in somewhat of relative peace and contentment. But then Alexander the Great comes onto the scene. And he brings Greek rule with him. And with Greek rule came the institution of Greek culture, which in some ways was good because it created a universal language that everybody was able to speak, no matter where they lived. Along with that, though, came Greek philosophy. It came the the worship of Greek gods and goddesses. And all that became a cultural norm. And you had freedom within your own religion as long as you incorporated these new ideals, which, as you might expect, would create a conflict between this pagan Greek culture and this traditional Jewish society. Well, that that conflict came to a climax when this new king that we're learning about in this passage moves into the beautiful land of Israel. In his vision, Daniel sees this king persecuting a whole host of Jews. He's trampling them to the ground, killing them. We learn that he opposes God, even claiming to be God himself. He tears down the sanctuary in, in ways and, and eliminates the temple sacrifices. He threw truth to the ground. And ruled with unchecked authority. In his vision, Daniel hears this voice. And the voice asks essentially a question that says, How long is this horror going to last? 
And God answers that question by telling them 2,300 mornings and evenings. And then he says the holy place, the temple, will be restored. Now, if you take that literally, which I do, it's just about six years long. As with the previous vision, like you and I, if this were to happen to us, Daniel had no idea what was going on here. He couldn't make sense of these new details. But, but, but once again, these details are talking about events that are happening still hundreds of years ahead of him, so how could he possibly know? So God sends Gabriel, the angel, to Daniel to give him an explanation. In, in verse 19, he describes this as, as a period of indignation. And, and then Gabriel makes known some of the details of what is happening in this vision. Let's pick that up in verse 20 and see what he says. This is Gabriel's explanation. He says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arise in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgression have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Are you beginning to see how this new layer adds increasing clarity to some of the things that we've already learned. You see, things that were originally just kind of alluded to but now become explicitly clear. The ram, which was the bear, which was the chest and arms of silver, is Medo-Persia. Do you see the connection? The goat, which was the leopard, which was the belly and thighs of bronze, is the kingdom of Greece. Explicitly clear in our passage. The large horn is the first king. Well, the first king of Greece is who? Alexander the Great. And after he died, we know historically his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms and ruled by four leaders, four of his generals. It's an historical fact. Over time, we know that there were a series of successors that followed those original four kings. And toward the end of that time, is what our passage says, toward the end of that time, a new king comes up out of those four. He's the, the smaller horn. Now, based on the details of the dream and the things that follow, we know who this king is. 
We know it from history. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the eighth ruler of the Seleucid division of the kingdom of Greece. And he does exactly what Daniel's vision said he would do. Again, hundreds. Are you hearing me? Hundreds of years before any of these events ever occurred. Antiochus was known for his cunning deception. It's an historical fact. He was not even an an heir to the throne. The only way he got there was through bribery and flattery. That's how he became a king. And when he became a king, he became a ruthless ruler, especially when he made his way into Jerusalem. When he did, we know from history that he launched an assault on the Jewish community. His goal was to transform Jerusalem into a Greek colony. And so when he got there, he destroyed many parts of the temple. He destroyed many parts of the wall and many of the houses in that area. And he used that material to begin to build a military garrison. He then took aim on the religious practices of the Jews, which, by the way, he detested. He changed the name for God to Zeus Olympus. And then he built pagan altars all throughout the city of Jerusalem and forced the Jewish people to sacrifice pigs on them in honor of their new God. He forbid the celebration of the Sabbath, the Jewish feasts. He terminated the sacrifices in the temple. He even took possession of the sacred books and the scrolls and he burned them in the streets of Jerusalem. Like Daniel said, he threw truth to the ground. He removed the regular sacrifices. And he destroyed the temple. He defiled it by erecting an altar to Zeus in the place of the sacrificial altar to God. And then he went and sacrificed a pig on that altar an unclean animal in just defiance to God and his people. We know that he plundered the treasury of the temple, taking holy articles used in worship. He had coins. We know this from, from history. He had coins minted that said on them, Antiochus Epiphanes, the God made manifest. Can you see how evil And depraved this man was. Even after Antiochus left the city, he commanded his officers to enforce his new rules with a vengeance, and they did. We know for a fact that there were thousands, thousands of Jews, a host of Jews, as our passage says, who were killed in that melee. Because anyone unwilling to worship the Greek gods was killed. Any uncircumcised infant was killed, along with their mother who was killed. If you were caught praying or made any attempt to make a sacrifice in the temple, you were killed. Thousands of Jews lost their lives. It was a desperate and dark time in the history of Israel, just as God said it would be. 
Now, as a side note, it might be of interest to you that these events are what later led to what we know to be the Maccabean Revolt. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Well, this is where a small band of people went in defiance to what was a very large kingdom and miraculously were able to stand their ground. After that revolt, just as our scripture said would happen, they rededicated the temple and restored the sacrifices once again. And all of this that I just described to you is commemorated to this day by the Jewish people in the festival known as Hanukkah. That's what's happening here. In the end, much like Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes dies mysteriously. Nobody really knows how. Some say it was a disease. Some say he died of madness because he was a cruel, evil man. But whatever it was, he did not die at the hands of another person. As Daniel said, he was broken without human agency. Do you see the fine details? Now look at verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision. And there was none to explain it. He could kind of make sense of what was being explained to him. But again, these are events that are still yet in his future. They only make sense to us because they're in our past. They're history. They're in our history books. We know they happen exactly as they've been described. So why would he feel more sick, though, with this vision than all the others? Because they were equally as strange, were they not? I believe it's because this nightmare impacted his own people. This one more than any of the others, it's close to home. Now, I mentioned earlier that that little horn in chapter 7 is different than the little horn we see here in chapter 8, and I do believe that's true. But as I mentioned earlier, I still think they're connected. In some ways, it may be a double fulfillment of prophecy, and let me tell you why. Antiochus Epiphanes and what we know to become the Antichrist at the end of times have very similar natures. So much so that it, it's at least reasonable to consider Antiochus as a type of the evil king who will persecute Israel in the last days. The Antichrist will carry out very similar persecution and defilement in Jerusalem, but only to an exponential degree. And yet, he too will be broken without human agency because his rule will end at the second coming of Christ. In both cases, we need to understand again that what we're seeing here is the evidence of the judgment of God. A judgment against sinful rebellion and religious compromise. Because here's what's interesting. When the Greek culture made its way into Jerusalem, many of the Jews jettisoned their faith. They were swept away by the momentum of this cultural revolution taking place. 
They chose the, the new freedoms of this Greek society instead of the traditional religious views of their faith. Much like we see today. Many of the young Jewish men and women deconstructed their faith to comply with cultural norms. They mocked the priests of God, rebelled against the commands of God. Many incorporated pagan worship into their new enlightened lifestyles. We see the same thing happening during the time of the Antichrist because the Scripture tells us that they will worship him, giving him full allegiance, that many will be amazed at what he can do and, and follow after him. But they will face God's judgment for sinful rebellion, just like we see in our passage today. You see, from where we sit today, we still have a choice. We can either continue in sin and invite God's wrath upon ourselves, or we can look to the cross where Jesus took God's wrath for our sins upon himself. Let's not underestimate the significance of what took place that day. When Jesus became the object of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. It wasn't just for forgiveness, although that's important. But that forgiveness came with a cost. And that cost was the wrath of God's judgment for sins he didn't commit so that we could be covered. That's what took place. We see that being proclaimed in Thessalonians, when it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then again in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. So as I said this morning in the beginning, there are two parallel stories, and only two, coursing throughout human history. One is focused on how God deals with people who willfully reject Him. The other deals with how God works with people who willfully and humbly trust Him. The first is destruction through judgment, eternal separation from a life-giving relationship of the one who showers you with kindness every single day. The other leads to eternal life through the fulfillment of the promises He's made in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is asking us, which one of those stories applies to you? It reminds me of the passage in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. It's familiar. But listen to what he's saying to his people when he gathers them together. He says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, 
whether the gods from your fathers served from beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living, we might add to this and say, or the idols of, of power and success and pleasure and comfort in the world in which we live today, choose today which you're going to serve. But he goes on to say, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The stories about God's judgment are not pleasant. Let's not make any mistakes about that. And really, we should have a very similar response to what we see with Daniel. It should burden our heart. It should feel heavy upon us. And not because we're going to experience that wrath of God's judgment. It's because we live around people who will. It should strengthen our commitment. It should motivate us to share the good news of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ who died for our sins in order to rescue us from the wrath of God's judgment. You and I, we need to turn from idols and the sin that so easily entangles us. And we need to serve a living and true God as we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for, I guess in many ways, the very real warning. And in that, I see great patience and kindness. You don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so over and over again through history, And through your word, you call people to a place of humbly trusting in you. People who are willfully rejecting you, you are inviting them into a place of complete forgiveness through your son. Who took the wrath that we deserve upon himself so that we don't have to. So Lord, may we rejoice in that gift that we have received through faith in Jesus Christ and may we be motivated to share the truth of that message to those around us who may not be in the same place. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word and for the miraculous prophetic truth that spoke of details that were hundreds of years into the future, but for us, they are facts of our past. They are our history. And if that is true of what has happened in the past, may we have great certainty of the things that you have promised that are yet to come and know that they are equally as true. May we be prepared accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together. Well, I know it's not about me, but I gotta be honest with you. I'm exhausted. (laughs) These are hard and heavy passages, but I need you to Make sure you don't miss something really important. I want you to see how trustworthy our God is. I want you to see the clarity with which he spoke about things that are yet to come. And I need you to understand that he spoke with the exact same clarity about Jesus Christ. The one who would be pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our sins. Just as we read in the book of Isaiah. And so know when he says these things 
that, that they are good and they are true. And so when he tells you, I love you, he means that. When he says, I forgive you, he means that. He is trustworthy. He is good. And when he says he's going to return, that there is an eternal place in his presence for those who rest in him, he means that. And it will happen. So let's live every day with the assurance of that truth and the conviction of his goodness. Amen. Lord, thank you for your goodness, for being so trustworthy and faithful, even in the midst, as we sing about this morning, so much unfaithfulness. But it doesn't stop what you said you would do because you keep your word generations after generations after generations. And Lord, we do long for the day of your promised return. But until that day, may we live with deep assurance of the promises that you've made to your people because of your goodness and grace towards us through the mercy and love of your son, Jesus Christ, who rescued us wrath to come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.